Let's find our place, if you would, if you have a Bible in Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are some blue Bibles up the back there, top shelf, that you can follow along with in the same translation. If that's helpful, Galatians chapter 2. And if you'd find verse 15... We'll read to the end of the chapter, Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. A few introductory comments this morning. Good Friday and Easter Sunday need to be understood for what they are. Traditions of men. In saying this, I'm not passing judgment on those who choose to celebrate them as holy days. Romans 14 and Colossians 2 tells us about that. However, it is essential and crucial that we interpret all of these things in the light of Scripture. And I want to make a couple of introductory comments this morning before we delve into our text. And some of them may be revolutionary to you if you are very caught up in even Christian culture as opposed to Scripture. Just a number of comments here. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, the Paschal Candle, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Mass, the accompanying vigils are not feasts or ordinances that find their origin in the Word of God. We need to be clear on that. They're not ordinances or commands found in the scripture. Secondly, there are two and only two New Testament ordinances which were specifically established for the church. And that, namely, the Lord's Supper and baptism, water baptism for the believer. Thirdly, since the origin of these Easter celebrations are not in the scriptures. We must understand that they are mere traditions and that at no time they should be viewed as essential to the church or Christianity. Now, I realize that this morning there may be some already thinking, what, aren't you a pastor? 
Okay, just hold on. Without caution, these traditions can attack the truth of the gospel and the biblical mandate set out for the church and the Christian. For example, if you see Easter Friday service as more essential than communion, you've got it wrong. Because Christ established communion for the remembrance of his death. If you think that Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, is more important than every single Sunday where we commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we meet today, collectively, then you've got it inverted. Now, having said all of that, liberty in Christ permits the Christian to engage in all manner of celebrations. We're not those who say we're anti-celebration. We have birthdays, uh, we have Christmas, we have Easter, we have Pentecost, we have all kinds of celebrations which fall into the category of our liberty in Christ. However, it is also very important that we do not engage in celebrations that are taken from the Scriptures and not truly understood through the lens of the Scripture. We need to understand as well when it comes to events like today, that these spiritual celebrations, these holy days that the culture and even the church at large would have us take part in, came from a majority of erroneous teachings from the Catholic Church. We hold to a Protestant view of the Scriptures and redemption. We reject the Pope, the Mass, transubstantiation, worship of Mary, purgatory, penance and justification by works. Again, I'm not seeking to uh, have a, a, a big dig at other church positions, but we need to understand where we are here as a local assembly, we reject those things. And many of the things that we're told to do today come from that theological position. Lastly, again, just some introductory thoughts. Well-meaning Christians often try to encourage unbelievers to remember what Easter is all about. We hear people say that. Let's remember what Easter is all about. That's very dangerous. And here's why. Unregenerate people cannot remember someone they do not know. So we want to take the opportunity to show them Christ, but let's not encourage unsaved people to do a, a once a year uh, entrance into a church building so that somehow they have done God a big favor when they don't even know who the person of Jesus Christ really is. We have to be very careful because they commemorate a man on a cross who was a Jew who died for some reason and rose again apparently, but I have no personal understanding or attachment to that. And so myriads of people are sitting in church services today thinking they've done God a great service. Far be it from us. I hope that we are not here because of religious duty. It bothers me to no end that potentially even the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, would think that today is somehow greater than any other day. Today is no greater 
today is, is no more effective in understanding the redemption. And we're going to talk about some of these things, but let's understand. Today is as essential as yesterday. And the gospel is as wonderful today as it was yesterday. And it's as wonderful as it was on Friday. And it's as, as wonderful as Jesus died on that day uh, 2,000 years ago. And on that Sunday when he rose again, it's as wonderful today as any other day. So let us not put this on a pedestal and think of it differently or some religious duty. Now, I'm all for commemorating the, the birth and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the day of Pentecost. I'm all for commemorating all of that in the pages of Scripture. But let's not get it out of proportion to the truth of the gospel that we live every single day of our lives. Having said all of that, some of you say, so you're the Easter Grinch. Okay, I'm not. But having said all of that this morning, I want to preach a message that exalts the hard hitting truth of the gospel as it relates to Jesus Christ. And I'd preach it any day of the week. This is what we're going to look at today. Our death, life and identity in the gospel. Our death, life and identity in the gospel in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Uh, Lord, thank you for a time where we can have uh, some concentrated attention upon your word and this incredible portion of scripture that magnifies the glory of your gospel. Lord, help us for these next few moments together to have an understanding perhaps like we never have. For those of us who know the reality of salvation, Lord, may we be built up, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged and changed to grow more and more in maturity and understanding of these truths. Perhaps there are those today who have come with all sorts of different motives and reasons, perhaps for religious duty, perhaps for some other reason, perhaps they've been invited by a friend. Lord, may they today be confronted with Jesus Christ, no man, no uh, external thoughts, but him alone and all that he has accomplished for us. And Lord, uh, if it is your will that you would reach down over the balconies of heaven and rescue some in our midst today, we would rejoice with the angels on high. In Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of background and context this morning as we come to this book of Galatians. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us that Galatia, the church at Galatia, was actually started by the Apostle Paul. Nowhere in the scripture does it actually say that. But he certainly traveled through the region and he was definitely involved at the beginning as he preached. And we find that in Galatians 1 and verse 8. But a real sad indictment is placed upon the church here at Galatia in the early chapter, uh, in the early portion of chapter 1. They have moved away from the pure gospel. What's happened in this church uh, of Galatians at Galatia is they began well, but they have gone on to believe uh, external and other erroneous teaching that the Apostle Paul never gave to them. In fact, we call it today legalism. They had added all these things to their faith. And what they were doing is they were listening to a group who were called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who believed that for Gentiles to enter into the church of Jesus Christ, they had to come by means of the Mosaic law and fulfill all of that before they could ever be truly saved. So there were those in the church at Galatia who were saying, you need to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. You need to go through the rites and rituals of uh, the old covenant in order to be saved. Let me make this abundantly clear for us here this morning. That's what we call legalism. And Jesus plus or minus anything is not saving faith. Jesus plus or minus anything 
is not saving faith. If you add to his gospel or you take away from his gospel, you do not have saving faith as it relates to the scriptures. The whole theme of the book of Galatians is simply justification by faith. It is that you are declared righteous by faith and not by works. Not by works. In fact, another commentator would entitle this book, the book of freedom in Christ. And so we want to look specifically, that's the context all around the verse that we're looking at, which is verse 20. But that's the context, justification by faith in Christ and him alone. And so I want you to see some incredible truths that Paul espouses here in our text, some assertions that are incredible. Let's begin by looking, verse 20, the first line, I have been crucified with Christ. So firstly, I'd like you to see our identification in the death of Jesus Christ. Our identification in or with the death of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has just made a striking statement. Speaking of a spiritual union that cannot be fully understood in Christ's death. Now to help us a little bit, the same author of Galatians uh, writes to the church at Rome. And I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment here. This will give us a little bit of the undergirding, underpinning truths by which the Apostle Paul is speaking of here in Galatians. In Romans chapter 6, let me read for us the first six verses again to help us understand what is he referring to here by I have been crucified with Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. King James, God forbid. Don't let this once be named among you. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that is to be destroyed, so that we would, be, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is a rich theological passage beyond our comprehension here this morning, as well as our time. But I want you to note Romans chapter 6 in a couple of places here. Verse 2, Paul says, in Christ we have died to sin. In verse 3 he says we've been baptized into the death of Christ. And then in verse 5, he says, we have been united with him in his death. There is a deep theological truth that every person in this room needs to understand this morning. The death of the Son of God, the death of this perfect Lamb of God, destroyed both the penalty and the power of sin for all those who would be redeemed. In his death, The penalty is abolished. In his death, the power is broken. His righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, met the legal demands of God the Father and he opened the life gate to what Hebrews calls a new 
and living way. This is an incredible message. Each of these statements in here in Romans and then also in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, refer to the death of our old self. If you are a Christian here this morning, you know what the old nature was. You know that that's what you were born into. It was a nature that uh, the whole point of that nature, the whole direction of that nature was sin. Everything about you was sinful. Though you may not have gone to a different, the full level of decay, you were depraved in every single area, the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses. That is your natural estate by birth. And Paul says, that old self was destroyed in the death of Jesus Christ. That is a marvellous message. That is an incredible message. That means that I no longer have to be concerned about the penalty of that sin, of that sin nature, which is death. Uh, Romans 6.23 tells us it's gone, it's finished. But I also don't have to live under the power of it anymore. What an incredible thought that now I am dead to my sin nature in Jesus Christ. I have freedom to love God. I have freedom to live in righteousness now where before I was a slave of sin. Paul's assertion in Galatians 2 and verse 20, which you might just want to turn back to again because that's going to be where we stay for the majority of the message. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I want you to note how this is worded as well. And it's a very, very good translation, I believe, of the Greek in this particular verse. I have been crucified, past tense, completed action, never to be redone, never to be brought up again, never to wonder, is it all done or did he just take part? Is it some or is it all? Have I truly died or is there still a little bit of life in my old nature? I have been, past tense, completed action, crucified with Christ. Now, this is something we can't fully comprehend in one sense because at the point of Christ's death, even though I was not alive yet, though I had not uh, turned in faith to Christ, though I didn't even understand who he was, I wasn't even a thought at that point. In that death, my sin died. So that one day later on, when on the 28th of May 1989, in my life, when I realized that I was a sinner, the blood of Jesus Christ and the death of Jesus Christ had already made a way for my salvation in that. So that at that instance, I was already crucified, but in reality, right there and then, my old nature was nailed to the cross and died with Christ. We don't need Jesus Christ to die again. We don't need to come before the Eucharist, as we're told today, and so many will be doing this this morning, where they will take a little wafer when it 
mystically becomes the real body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Catholic tradition. We take that and we eat that and we crucify Jesus again for our sin. It's done. It's done once for all, Hebrews said. We don't need to do that again. Let us not think for a moment that Christ needs to be re-crucified, that our sin nature needs to be re-crucified. If you have come to a place where you've recognized you're dead in sin and have no hope in this life outside of Jesus Christ and you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sin it is done religion says do 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 Jesus Christ says done it is finished which is precisely by the way what we're going to look at next week in our communion service it is finished so that's all interesting theological information just intellectual information potentially at this point so here's the question what then what does it then mean that I have been crucified with Christ. Okay, I hear the theological information. Uh, I get some of that. I've been here maybe enough times to know what you're saying. What does it mean? Give me some practicalities here. What does this look like? I'm glad you asked. I have eight of those practicalities for you. Here's number one. What does it mean? What are the outcomes of Christ's death? Not only was Christ crucified on Mount Calvary, I was crucified there too. In him. That's the first thing to understand. I was crucified there. Number two. I love this, number two. I really doubt whether we'll get through what's on my bits of paper here this morning. But number two, at conversion. At the moment of conversion, when I trusted Christ, my old identity... As a sinner in God's sight was forever eradicated. My identity as a sinner in God's sight at the moment of conversion was forever, eternally eradicated. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creature, a new creation, recreated. The old has passed away and the new has come. It's here and it's not just coming and going, it's here to stay. We need to understand this because what so often happens is people will place some sort of a condemnation or guilt trip upon us. Now sin is sin. And it it is harmful in our relationship with God. But if you are Christ, if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, your identity of the past is gone. It's finished. It's complete. He's covered it. He's bought you with His precious blood. It's over. And so to live constantly in the realm of guilt and condemnation is an attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we say, God couldn't say, He's already done it. We say, oh, God couldn't save me from this. There's no way I can recover from this one. If you are his, you are already recovered. It's done. The old nature has been eradicated. Your identity now is not as a sinner, but as a son. Sonship. Credible thought. Number three. The crucifixion of my old nature was the end of, Of any attempt to earn or merit salvation on my terms. When my old nature was crucified, you know how that happened? 
That happened when I realized there's nothing at all that I can do to bring about my own salvation. Nothing. Save only believe. Save only to, with volition, trust in that finished work of Jesus Christ. That was what my old nature tried to tell me. I can do it by myself. I can lift myself up by my own bootstraps. But then the Apostle Paul says to us, He saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And so the crucifixion of my old nature was the end of any attempt to earn or merit salvation on my own terms. Number four. The crucifixion of my old nature was the end of the condemnation of God. Here's the reality this morning, and it's very similar to the second one we looked at. The Bible said, the Lord Jesus says that those who do not believe on Him are condemned already presently abiding under the wrath of God until such a time as those individuals come to a place of understanding who the Lord Jesus is by the Spirit of God and trust in that work on the cross and in the grave when He rose again. Condemnation abides upon those who are lost. Those who are outside of Jesus Christ literally, currently, perpetually abide under the wrath of God. And without change, without a change of heart that comes by the Spirit of God and by our volition to trust in Him, without that, we are damned, doomed, and will spend an eternity away from the presence of God. But you know what that means for us as believers? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the Christians may condemn us, and most of us have had that at some point in our lives. Christians around the place that want to condemn us. The world may condemn us. People that we respect may condemn us. But never again in all of history, in past, present or future, will God the Father ever condemn us again. It's gone. It's finished. It's done. It's a little bit like the promise that God made after he had flooded the earth. He said, I put my bow in the heavens. This is my covenant. I'll never do this again. Well, the same covenant was made. No condemnation covenant was made at the point of your sin nature being crucified to the cross. Never again will you be under condemnation of God. Such joy. Wonderful reality. Number five. The crucifixion of my old nature broke the penalty of sin. We touched on this before. Uh, Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. So sin results in death. Sin unchanged, without a change of nature, without repentance will result in death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, Romans is a great book. Sometimes you need to get into the book of Romans because there's three things that Romans teaches us basically that Christ freed us from the penalty of sin. Christ freed us from the power of sin and Christ will ultimately free us from the presence of sin. We talk about justification, sanctification and glorification. If you've been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone and none other, then you know the reality that the penalty of sin has been removed. God poured out his total wrath and fury on your behalf on his son on the cross of Calvary. In other words, He took your hell. In other words, He took your sin and instead of you having to live in that sin for the rest of eternity, He imputed to you His righteousness whereby God the Father looks upon you and no longer sees you in your sin, but sees you in His Son. Wow. 
Why, God, would you do that? Should be the question that we are in gratitude asking. How is this possible? Number six, the crucifixion of my old nature broke the power of sin. We dealt with the penalty, now the power of sin. I am no longer a servant of sin. I'm no longer bound and enslaved. You know what this means? This means that I do not have to sin anymore. Now, please do not misunderstand this. So many people jump to the final conclusions. There he is, he's teaching on sinless perfection. We can reach it in this. I don't believe that, but I do believe we should be getting closer all the time. I do believe that this life is spent developing more and more to be conformed to the image of Christ so that what I was 10 years ago is not what I am now. And what I will be in 10 years will be different to where I am now so that there is a lessening of sin and a, a greater sense of holiness and glory in my life to Jesus Christ. That's the process of sanctification. To be more and more set apart. So here's what this means practically, Christian. If you understand this this morning, you do not have to be overtaken by any sin. There is no sin that need have dominion over you anymore. There is no pattern. There is no, uh, there's no addiction. There's no situation that God cannot overcome by the power of the gospel because that's what it was. That's what it was for. Break the penalty and break the power of Satan and sin and death and hell so that we might live unto him in righteousness. So as you search your own hearts and say, oh, I'm wrestling in this particular area of my Christian life. Uh, I'm trying of my own uh, volition to do this. You can't do it. It's not your volition. It's not your own will. You can't will yourself into this. This is the work of the Spirit of God. And as I walk in that truth, He will free me constantly from the power of that sin. See, I was, Romans says, a servant of sin. A slave, bound and enslaved and blind. I could do nothing. The shackles were on and there was nothing I could do but sin. The Lord Jesus comes along and opens the shackles, opens the prison door, opens the cell and we walk out. Now, sometimes foolishly as Christians, you know what we do? We walk back into the dungeon and say, all right, I, I want to get reshackled. But it's done. It's finished. The power is, is there. We don't have to live there anymore. The old nature has been destroyed. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now don't for a moment think that you are free to do whatever you want. That's exactly what Romans 6 says. Why? Because the grace of God abounds. I can do whatever I want now. I can sin like it doesn't matter. Jesus has taken care of it. And he says, God forbid. Do not nullify and treat the grace of God like that. You've been set free, not to sin, but to serve. Number seven. The crucifixion of my old nature now means that I am positionally as righteous as Jesus Christ himself and cannot earn one iota more of God's favour. This, this is a remarkable truth that most people don't even bother to think about much. You say, how is it, po it, it, it can't be possible that I am as righteous as Jesus Christ. No, not practically, not in everyday life. Obviously, we sin all the time. We know that as Christians. Nobody in this room is going to say, I'm a Christian and I don't have any sin. Positionally, before God the Father, 
The righteousness of Christ has been imputed to me. I am right now positionally as righteous as I can ever be before the Father and nothing can ever change that reality. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing that you think will ever change one iota the divine favour of God positionally. Now, obviously every day we sin and it is absolutely essential we confess and be cleansed in our everyday walk. We know that. But before God, positionally as righteous as Christ. What a thought. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, probably one of my favourite gospel verses in the whole Bible. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. So if you say, I can't be as righteous as Christ, you don't believe that his righteousness was imputed to you. That it's not good enough. This is the central theme of the gospel. The only way you can have an access and boldness before the Father's throne is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Number eight, the crucifixion of my old nature annihilates legalism and any attempt to return to the laws of the old covenant. You know what it means? It means that I cannot add, I cannot take away from this glorious gospel and yet all over the place we do it. Every church, to some degree, has some sense of legalism where we add things to what we do all the time, traditionalism or legalism or something. But this gospel is a pure gospel and we need add and take nothing away from it. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Just those eight things and so much more. It's a good thing you don't give me three hours to preach because there's so many more I could. Hopefully you see in that our identity in the death of his Son, in the death of Christ. Secondly, and uh, we don't have much time left, so we'll probably leave it here, but I want you to see, most importantly, our identity in the life of Jesus Christ. We can't, I can't finish on his death. I need to finish on his life. All right, so stay with me for just a moment here. Identification in the life of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now again, we, so familiar with this verse, may just brush over what this means. The theological significance of this phrase. Here again we encounter a remarkable statement. A misunderstanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a misappropriation of it, can lead to someone thinking they're saved but they're not. Did you know that it is essential to your salvation to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? When you preach the gospel, do not, may I beg of you, do not leave out the truth that Jesus rose again from the dead. And you must believe that. You know why? Because Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, then, and only then in the Greek, will you be saved. It is essential we understand the resurrection. In Romans 6 and verse 4, we read it before, it says that we, just like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Would you quickly turn there for me, please? Colossians chapter 3. Just a couple of books over. Again, following a similar pattern here the apostle paul says if you then be next word raised 
with Christ. Seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not things on the earth, for you have died, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Suddenly in verse 4, Paul says, when Christ who is your life, not part of your life, who is your life, shall appear, then you'll also appear with him in glory. In other words, church, this morning, we died with Christ and are raised in Christ. Let me tell you about a remarkable transition that has taken place. This is a gospel truth here. Our death was to sin and our old nature. We've just covered that. But we were raised to a spiritual life. That is so intrinsically connected to Jesus Christ that Paul writes, it's Christ who lives in me. Death lived in me. Sin lived in me. It was destroyed. It was executed at the cross. And now my life that is lived is not even me. Now that's not to say I don't have my my character traits and my personality. But in Christ, Christ lives in me. What an incredible thought. He lives within me. And his life is being lived out in this life. This is precisely what the Apostle John meant when he said, when the Lord Jesus spoke, I am the vine, you are the branches. We're connected here. There's a unity here. And the one who abides in me will bear much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now please, uh, as, we, as we come to a bit of a landing strip here this morning, there's a couple of things that are absolutely crucial for us to understand. And I just ask you to... Uh, Get your attention in gear here. Listen to this concept. It is therefore an impossibility for one whose old nature has been crucified and whose new identity is in Christ to ever dissolve this blood-bought relationship. That's an impossibility. There is teaching left, right and centre about the loss of salvation, insecurity in salvation. If there was any insecurity in salvation, the reality of it is we all would have lost it. All of us. It's It's not an impossibility for us to lose it were it possible. It is an only possibility that we would lose it if it were possible. None of us would make it because we are so fickle and we are so changeable. The dual reality that Christ lives in me and I live in him is as inseparable as the relationship between the father and the son. When Jesus Christ says, I'm in him and he's in me, and then he says, I live through them, they are connected, they are unified to the same extent the gospel of our salvation says, if you are saved, truly saved, the old nature is crucified and the new identity is in Christ, it's just as impossible for the Father to not be connected to the Son as it is for you to not be connected to the Son. You are in Him. You come before the Father in Him. So at what point could you ever be disconnected from that reality? The question is not, have I been disconnected? The question is, have I ever entered into the union of his death and received a new identity in Christ? That's the question. The question is not, did I walk an aisle one day and make a profession of faith? That's not the question. The question is, is my current present status, my identity, Christ is living in me? 
And it's a reality. And I know it. The Spirit of God lives within me. I've access to the Father. I know that to be a reality. That's the question. I love Wade Robinson's grand old hymn when he wrote these words. His forever, only his. Who the Lord and me shall ever part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light in gloom decline, but while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. So like before, there's some ramifications of my new life in Christ and we'll finish on this. There's only seven of them and I'll be quick, I promise. What are the ramifications then? So the ramifications of my death in Christ, I see it. So what's the ramifications? What's the outcomes? What's the result then of my life in Christ? Number one, I am not my own. Something we as selfish Christians don't really, don't really want sometimes. I'm now a slave of Jesus Christ. I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. My new life is in him. Therefore, I am not my own. I am not here to please myself. I have no rights of my own. My only rights are in my identity in Jesus Christ. I am not my own. Think about what that means in your own life. I'm not my own. Secondly, and very much connected, I now live for the glory of another. My purpose here is not for me. I live for the glory of another. When you look up that word doxa, glory in the Greek, you know what it literally means? It means to give the right opinion of someone. I live now for giving the right opinion of my new identity, which is Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here. So when the Apostle Paul says things like, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God, we like to sort of minimize that and say, well, you know, I mean, he can't mean everything, surely. That's exactly what he means. He means every part of our life. When I go to work, when I go to sleep, when I spend time with my spouse, when I do this, when I, all of this for his glory. Because my identity is now not about me. It's about his glory. Number three, again, very similar. My purpose is defined by my redeemer. If he's the one who nailed my old nature to the cross, if he's the one who produces new life in me, then my identity is connected to the one who recreated me. That's only reasonable. And what is his purpose in me? Romans 8.29, to bring glory to God by being conformed to the image of his dear son. That's the point. You say, what's the point of the Christian life? To be like Christ. Simple. Number four, what are the ramifications of my new life in Christ? That which is worldly in me needs to be constantly put to death. Colossians says, mortify, put to death that which is worldly among you. Ephesians chapter 4 says, put off and then put on. Take off those filthy rags of the flesh and put on the righteous truths and life of Jesus Christ. Number five, this body is to be brought under subjection and offered as a living sacrifice. See, even this body isn't my own anymore. Even this um, outer suit My soul is contained in this body suit at present, but one day this body will be over. This body is to be offered. I've always wondered, or I wondered for many years, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I therefore uh, beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
Why the body? Why not everything about us? Because the body is that which is left over that's not already identified fully with Jesus Christ. This is the body suit that is uh, still in the flesh. One day, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, I'm going to have a new body. You're not going to have to worry about putting off the deeds of the flesh anymore. That's it. It's over. So our body needs to be brought into subjection and offered as a living sacrifice. Number six. Now, I actively pursue Christ and operate with an eternal vision. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Why, oh Christian friends, are we so world-focused? Why are we so temporal in our vision? Why are we looking at the here and now? This is not who we are. We're pilgrims passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. What we've done for Christ is what lasts. It's not the temporal life that we we pursue Him. We look for Him. We look for a, like Abram, we look for a country whose maker is God. We look for a new territory that is yet to come. Number seven, I work fervently and faithfully because the Lord is coming again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that whole portion of scripture there, deals with that wonderful occasion when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that day is coming. But then he says at the end of chapter 15, after he's uh, described that wonderful event, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So while you're here, don't put your feet up. That's what the Thessalonians were thinking. Well, God's coming back. He's coming back soon. Let's just enjoy ourselves. That's not it. He's coming back. We have an eternal vision, but we work while we wait, while we watch for his return. So what are the ramifications of my new life? I'm not my own. I live for the glory of another. My purpose is defined by my Redeemer. That which is worldly needs to be put to death all the time. My body is to be brought under subjection. I actively pursue Christ and I work fervently and faithfully because the Lord is coming again. For those who are taking notes, I'm going to give you the other two points for you to consider for your own time. The third thing we would have looked at this morning is that the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. This life is now to be lived by faith. Not just entered by faith, but lived out in faith constantly. And there's so much here, you'll have to read the sermon notes when you get them in email this week. And then the last thing that we were going to look at this morning at the end of verse 20. The scripture says, who loved me and gave himself for me. The supreme motive behind his marvelous grace is always love. Is always love. So I want to conclude with these comments. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ to the Romans, it was just another execution routine. To the Jews, it was the death of an imposter. To us who believe, it was the death of our mediator, our redeemer, our savior, our Lord, our king, our deliverer, our substitute, our intercessor, our sin bearer and the lover of of our souls. To the Romans, the resurrection was a mystery unsolved to this day. To the Jews, it was a trick and an opportunity to incriminate the disciples. To us who believe, it was the means of our recreation, 
the disempowerment of sin's penalty and control, and the establishment of our new life in Christ. My plea with you this morning is come to appreciate and understand the full reality of our life, our death, and our identity in the gospel. Christ liveth in me. Father, thank you for a time in your word this morning. We have covered so much. There is so much more that could be said. I pray that that which you would have for each person uh, today uh, would have been uh, faithfully communicated. Uh, I pray that, Lord, all that has been said would be accurate and in accordance with your word. I pray for those who may have questions or concerns, Lord, that they would take the time to uh, have those uh, cleared up uh, to understand what the scripture teaches Our Lord, for each of us today, may we again stand amazed, amazed at the love of God, the gospel of God, our identity in his death, our identity in his life that now is being lived out in us, the life of faith that we now live, the love of God that has been put on display by him giving himself up for us. What marvelous truths. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of delving into these truths yet again today. In Jesus' name, amen.